You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt. She is an historian who focuses on issues of inequality and poverty in America. Her book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, won the 2018 Bennett H. Wall Award from the Southern Historical Association. Along with Dr. Matthew Hild, she edited Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power which won the 2019 Best Book Award from the United Association for Labor Education. She hosts the podcast Meritocracy on YouTube, and she is currently working on a Civil War documentary and a project on Lillian Smith. Today, we will speak with her about history, class, race, and Lillian Smith. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Merritt. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'm really glad to have you. I I know I've been on your podcast, and we talked about different things, and you've been up to the camp, and you've kind of been on a journey, I think, of with Lillian Smith these past couple of years. So can you kind of talk about how you came to learn about her? So it's a crazy story. I like to think of myself as a very well-read person, particularly well-read in Southern literature. I worked at a bookstore my entire teenage life, but for some reason, I literally never heard of Lillian Smith until I think I think you were the one, honestly, that first really introduced me to her. I'd heard her name in passing, but I had never really figured out, you know, that she was the anti-racist woman that, you know, I had heard about through people like Martin Luther King. Um, and so I, I think it was through you a few years ago. And once I started figuring out who she was, I immersed myself in everything she had written and all the books that have been written about her and really realized that I had not heard about her for a political reason. You know, essentially, this is part of the kind of whitewashing of our history, the exactly what we're seeing right now with the, the pushback to any kind of history that make whites feel guilty because Lillian Smith's work was, you know, very pointedly to make whites feel something about racism and um, the the atrocities that were going on in 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, Georgia, and even throughout the South and the nation. And so, again, thank you so much for introducing her to me, because I think hers is a message that that Americans desperate, white Americans desperately, desperately need to hear right now. Well, one thing you said there really stuck out to me, the fact that it's kind of, I don't remember if you use this term specifically, but a political erasing of Lillian Smith's legacy. You know, she died in 1966, so two years before King and RFK. And I just got through with the podcast episode with Julie Cohen, who was co-director with Betsy West of My Name is Polly Murray and Dr. Patricia Bell Scott and about Polly Murray and Lillian Smith. And one of the things that Dr. Bell Scott says about Polly Murray in that documentary is that we can't teach American history without teaching about Polly Murray, right? And Lillian Smith, in many ways, is kind of the same. I see them kind of as being in tandem, even though they they had different paths and different things, they were very much connected. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to kind of this question. So in the propaganda of history, which is the final chapter in W.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, 
The boys writes, we have too often a deliberate attempt so to change the facts of history that the story will make pleasant reading for Americans. So here, of course, the boys is writing about the Reconstruction era and Lillian Smith in Killers of the Dream and elsewhere doesn't go into historical facts like the boys does, but she paints a wide brush pointing out many of the same things that the boys and others do. So really my question this we're going to talk about history a lot, I know, and the importance of remembering individuals like Lillian Smith and Polly Murray, but that's focused on Reconstruction. Like I said, Smith talks about Reconstruction. Why is Reconstruction so important to our understanding of the history of the United States? And this is one of the areas I know you focus on antebellum period and kind of the long history, but why is it important for us to know about Reconstruction and the gains that were made? Right. So Reconstruction to me is the most, the most fascinating period in our nation's history, unquestionably. Uh, And not just looking at what's going on in the South, but throughout, you know, all of America at that time. And, but, but the South is very particularly interesting because you have such a huge social, political, economic upheaval of society there. And you really almost in some ways have a blank slate of, of creating something new, you know, creating a, a new South. And, you know, ultimately that unfortunately that doesn't happen. But I, I talk about the fact that literally every major, major problem that we're dealing with today comes from the era of reconstruction, right? It has roots back in reconstruction. And that includes anything from the the massive racial wealth gap we're facing, uh, not only between uh, blacks and whites, but between native Americans and whites, uh, but also um, our our nation's horrible problem with basically our carceral state, our police state, and the racist nature of that and, and the way that it's just completely out of control. And uh, you know everything from uh, inequities and in housing to education, every major thing, healthcare that we're dealing with today has roots in this era. And the main reason for that is because this is an area of you know rapid colonization in the West, where Native Americans are being you know brutally slaughtered, mostly by you know former Union troops. Um, and, and their land is being taken over and literally given to white people and not just white Americans, but white settlers, white, white immigrants. Um, and and simultaneously, simultaneously, you have uh, in the South, you know, finally, finally, Black people had fought for generations for their freedom and won it, but they're essentially freed, as Eric Foner puts it, with nothing but their freedom, right? They, they, they have some political rights in the very early years, but they have nothing economically and no um, real rights um, in the labor market. And so because there was never any type of, of restitution or justice or recompense, you know, what we would call reparations today, there were, there were never reparations, there was never a payment for any of the years of generations of slavery, of, of brutality, of, of rape, um, you know, of murder, because there was never any anyone punished for that or any land redistributed or any wealth redistributed, that's why we face such a, a massive, um, massively unequal society today. I mean, America is one of the most unequal societies in the developed world. And then we're one of the only ones that, that don't have basic you know, social safety nets like you know, healthcare, for example. Um, and so again, that this is all 
rooted in this era of our nation's history. And the more I learned about it, my intro to Reconstruction, I'm a literary scholar, of course, and not a historian, but the more I read now, the more history I think I'm reading. My intro to Reconstruction, of course, was Frank Yerby, who I've talked to you about, you know, Georgia author, and specifically his novel, The Vixens, which deals with Reconstruction. Um, The original draft he had of that was supposedly a lot more rooted in the Reconstruction and debunking the myths of Reconstruction and the fallout of Reconstruction afterwards, the backlash. But I mean, that was when I learned about some of the events in Louisiana. I learned about the progressive politics, the Constitution of 1918, uh, I think it's 1868, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, and how progressive it was, you know, and about the massacres and the white backlash, especially in the region where I grew up. And then even looking at something like Dr. Tyler Perry and Dr. Robert Green's new book about the University of South Carolina and their recent article in the Washington Post about the University of South Carolina integrating, right, right? during Reconstruction. So all of these types of things are things that we don't know about. I sure as heck never learned about in school. I mean, definitely and, not my K-12. Right. Absolutely. I, I don't know that I really learned about it, even you know, despite majoring in history and even you know, taking specific, so many specifically Southern history courses until I was in graduate school. And again, uh, a very pointedly political reason that gets back to, to what you were saying about the, the great friendship, the great mentorship, really, that Lillian Smith had with Polly Murray. And I love that film, by the way, it's a great documentary. Um, but Lillian Smith really was a mentor and she guided Polly Murray through a lot of the ways that she could make money as a writer, that she could earn money to be a creative and an intellectual, to even uh, you know, support her mother uh, while she was in school and law school. And so uh, Lillian Smith was instrumental in her getting the big grant that she got to basically get through Howard Law School. So any of these kind of eras in the, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s in the South or Reconstruction or big P populism, the, the 1880s and 1890s, these are eras where there actually was a chance for poor whites and blacks to come together politically, economically, and you know, fight for their rights uh, as laborers um, and as people having the same economic interests. And especially during Reconstruction, that's when you see that there was you know, the, the biggest chance of this actually happening, specifically in the Deep South. You have, for a few years in these Deep South states, very, very, very progressive uh, leaders mm-hmm. who are actively courting poor white voters into the party. And it is a biracial party for several years, really run by poor whites and lower class, lower middling class whites, and mostly by black men. And see, that's, I think, what really drew me into your book, Masterless Men, which that focuses on the antebellum South and poor whites there. But then you kind of move forward a little bit at the end. And in that book, you write, although the overwhelming brunt of slaveholder brutality and cruelty fell upon the backs of African-Americans, Slavery was also a deeply injurious institution for a significant number of Southern white. So the psychology of that institution and the perpetuation of it following, you know, the Civil War. And Lillian Smith points to the same thing. She says in Killers of the Dream and elsewhere that the frame around every black child's neck rests upon the white child as well. And as you know, she writes, and I knew that what cruelly shapes and cripples the personality of one is cruelly shaping and crippling the personality of the other. So. Can you talk some within your research in the antebellum period or after or the 1900s about the ways that poor whites suffered psychologically, physically and economically 
during the antebellum period or in any of these other periods you're talking about. Sure. And, and I always, I like to preface this by just saying that, you know, obviously I am not making any kind of apology for the racism of poor whites um, in any kind of period here. There is obviously always racism, but, and I'm not in any way, you know, comparing their plight to the plight of enslaved people or even free blacks. There's, there is no comparison, but they did absolutely suffer uh, in a society living in specific, specifically in a slave society in the deep South was even worse um, because you have a labor market that is an unfree labor market and is dominated by workers who are unpaid and brutalized, you know, literally beaten to within an inch of their lives, made to work harder and faster. And so poor white men and women could not compete with enslaved, brutalized labor for wages or for jobs. And so you end up having this huge, you know, poor white underclass. And I, I really estimate their numbers to be about a third of white people in the deep South and the cotton South. Um, and, and these people don't have, you know, living wages. They don't have stable jobs. They're constantly moving around in search of work because they had always traditionally been agricultural workers. I argue that ultimately their presence and their kind of you know, these are these are masterless men in a in a mastered hierarchical society. They they have the ability to to ultimately bind to themselves together with enslaved people or free blacks and, and fight against the upper class elites. And in the 1850s specifically, you see the start of labor unions, uh, specifically mechanics unions, coming together and speaking out against the fact uh, of slavery itself, like literally saying that we are not going to support slavery anymore if this keeps up, if you can't support, if you can't make laws to actually you know, make there be certain industries that only white men are in so that our, our wages will not be depressed, then we're going to have problems and, and we will withdraw our support for slavery. And so, you know, the enslaved people were already fighting for their freedom in so many different ways. And you have Northern abolitionists coming in against Southern slaveholders. And I argue that poor whites are kind of, you know, they're, they're creating a three front battleground against slavery. And that really ultimately uh, upper class elite Southern whites don't have uh, a lot of choice left by 1860, but to secede. And that leads me to something in Killers of the Dream when Lillian Smith's talking to a, a young camper about, you know, this history. And she kind of used this metaphor about two brothers with the North and the South. And she says at one point, him is the Northern. It bothers him that his brother doesn't pay wages for his labor. So the enslaved, right? You know, he doesn't pay much himself, but he at least pays a little. And this makes him feel self-righteous. At the same time, he feels that his morals handicap him. And I think too about a quote that she has a little bit later. What I like about Smith is the fact that she points out that these are issues, and we'll get into that wedge issue that you're talking about too, but she points out that the North was just as culpable within this kind of discussion, just as the South, right? The North and South were not a right and wrong cause fighting each other, but two bad consciences, each covering up its guilt and its greed, each insisting on its right to sin in its own way, each having economic and religious and psychological reasons for doing so. Those economic reasons you're talking about, right? Absolutely. And again, that goes, that, that sounds Du Boisian, right? It's exactly the, the North is not some noble you know, union, pro-union fighting to end slavery. It is an imperialist army. It is, uh, you know, as soon as they're done fighting the South, they, again, like I said, they move into the West and, and enslave and rape and, and murder Native Americans. But um, 
what Du Bois says, you know, on a broader level and what Smith says and so many other people who I argue have been, you know, historically silenced, their work is not taught in school, has not been taught in school, has been deliberately hidden in many cases, is that there, you know, there were these chances of real interracial cooperation by the underclasses. Dating back to the colonial period. Exactly, exactly. Back to the Edmund Morgan um, theory back in Bacon's Rebellion. You know, and I mean, even uh, every major slave rebellion we've had in America has had uh, white people involved in some way. And, and again, you think about John Brown, uh, it's right on Harper's Ferry. You know, that's a, all of those are interracial you know, interracial coalitions fighting against the powers that be. And so, and that's why I think John Brown specifically was such a huge threat to the South because it was a white man, you know, fighting against slavery. And, and there are so many instances of this. And I know that's part of an uh, issue that some people have with the 1619 project is that it doesn't show as many instances of interracial cooperation as there really have been throughout history. Uh, you think about the Black Panthers. There were White Panthers, you know, along with Black Panthers fighting with them. Think about what Fred Hampton was trying to do with four I was just about to mention him. Yeah, I mean, so these are the, they, they killed Fred Hampton. They killed Martin Luther King, not when he was talking about social equality, not when he was talking about, you know, educational equality. They killed him when he starts talking about economic equality and building a coalition of poor people from all different races. And that is what the American elite fear more than anything. And see, I keep, I keep thinking back to, I'm from Louisiana, as you know, and one thing that always sticks with me is Dr. Thaddeus Davis in one of her books says that Louisiana, you know, when America purchased Louisiana, which is a whole another issue because of the Haitian Revolution, and all that stuff, too. But she said it could have served as actually a template for how to rectify these issues at that point. But the Americanization of Louisiana didn't allow it to happen. I think that's a very kind of telling thing, because even though there were issues under the French and the Spanish, the mixture in New Orleans and South Louisiana was very important. And it's still very important. But that leads right. us to kind of, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, that's the, the reason that I actually did not include Louisiana in my analysis in Masterless Men, because you have such a different racial hierarchy there. Um, that it, and, and not to mention the legal system is very different as well, but even legally how race is classified. And I so, think Ernest, if, if you're interested in that, Ernest Gaines is a good entry point into that. Um, literature wise. And then of course, Thaddeus Davis talks about it in her book. It's, it's a literary um, manuscript, basically um, about literature, but that those hierarchies with Cajun, Creole, black, white, I mean, wealthy whites, it's just, it's a very unique system, I would say. And one that, that benefits from white supremacy and all this stuff too, but it is very different than just that dichotomy of black and white or that binary. But that leads us to the next question. You've kind of touched on a little bit, but following the civil war, Wealthy whites made, as Smith puts it, a bargain with poor whites. So Mr. Rich White and Mr. Poor White, telling them that whiteness trumped all. And she said, listening to words of revivalist and demagogue, as Smith writes, the poor white, despite his misery, believed himself important among men, for Jesus had died for him, and his white blood made him superior to all other people, blacks, foreigners, Jews. So Smith points out again and again, like Fred Hampton did, like countless others have, the ways that Christianity... Not sure about Fred Hampton. Sure, he probably did. The ways that Christianity works to support white supremacy. Can you talk some about the ways that enslavers before the Civil War and wealthy whites following the war use Christianity in this manner? 
Right. I mean, that, that, so Christianity was the, the biggest reason enslavers used for slavery itself. I, you know, obviously that was the basis of the, the so-called positive good of slavery that, uh, you know, it was in the Bible, it was ordained from God and they're doing you know, the enslaved a favor by taking care of them and being, you know, supposedly benevolent paternalist masters. What's, what's interesting is it, it gets kind of into, if you go back to early modern European history uh, and you talk about the kind of masterless men in Europe or, the, or those are the white men after the, the Black Plague, right? When vagrancy law really becomes big in places like Britain. And so these men are, are always, you know, they're, they're not working for anyone in particular. They don't have anybody, you know, with full political or social control over them. So they always pose a, a threat to the state um, and to landholders and to the elite. And in many ways, poor whites, you know, in, in America are viewed much the same way. My point about Christianity, though, is that during this time in the Black Plague, that's when they came to start associating poverty um, instead of seeing it as something, you know, that Jesus had done and, and something that you should take care of the poor. But after the Black Plague and you had all of these like masterless men kind of running around and and being lawless. And, and that's when they started seeing poverty as a real problem, a social problem, uh, and even crime, you know, crime. So, that, crime. so that poverty was a moral choice, not, not a systematic choice. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's divorced from Christianity at that point, um, you know, by the, by the early modern period, by the 1400s, 1500s, they're, they're not, they don't view poverty uh, as something that, you know, that is something that, that you're, you're doing to be like Jesus or that, you know, it's, instead it's a problem. That, that leads me to kind of, there's a lot we could say with Christianity with, with Lillian Smith. And I did a podcast with um, Reverend Benjamin Boswell about that a while back, but I want to go back to this question and this kind of comment you made earlier about her being politically silent. And, you know, we know about her and just like you, I didn't know much about her. I knew her name. That was it. I didn't know the extents of what she was doing. And I still, even the more I dive into her, I still don't know the full extent of what she was doing. I mean, every day something new pops up about her, whether it's something good or bad. I mean, she's not perfect. We know that she had issues, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, and Polly Murray did too, as they point out in the film, right? So what do you think led to that political silencing or political erasing of Lillian Smith? And why do we need to come back to her? I think we need to come back to her because, I mean, we're, we're at a major crossroads in our nation right now. I really think as a historian, I'm speaking just completely as a historian, as divorced from reality of living through this right now as I can be, is we are at a crossroads as a nation. And if we don't do something drastic and massive uh, in order to combat poverty and racism in this country, that we will be a failed state very, very soon. We're on our way right now uh, with the way we're handling and continue to handle COVID with no sort of, um, you know, healthcare system in place and no uh, real, you know, sense of formal policy in place. But um, she's, I think she's more important now than ever because we have all of this, you know, this, this Black Lives Matter movement coming forth in the last couple of years and it's so necessary and so needed and we really see all of these groups being really 
intergenerational, multiracial, and it's bringing up kind of the best things that happened throughout history, the best things in, in the civil rights movement. You know, the SNCC was an integrated uh, organization for so many years, a, a student nonviolence. She was involved with. Right. And so, you know, all of these interracial efforts, I think, kind of have been written out of history. There's, there's so much kind of pigeonholing of, oh, here's white history, here's black history. But the reality is people were always working together. And that's what I've been just blown away with um, by going through the archives. And again, we're never going to know much about her because so much of her information and correspondence burned, unfortunately, um, and was destroyed. But but the reality is what you can get. It is amazing how many people she's corresponding with, how many people she knows personally from Eleanor Roosevelt to Benjamin Mays, the president of Morehouse, to Martin Luther King, to, you know, presidents of major HBCUs all over the place. I yep. mean, I mean, she knew everyone and and really worked hard through correspondence to to keep up these kind of grassroots level organizational changes, even when the government wasn't acting well before the government acted there. I just keep becoming amazed. But but like I mentioned earlier, too, her, her pushing back against some of them, too, whether she was right or wrong at some of her pushback. I think she was wrong at some of her pushback, you know, with some organizations. Absolutely. I was just I was just reading something today, just learning about her Southern Conference of Human Welfare, you know, kind of those connections. And I'm kind of like, I don't necessarily know if I agree. With, I, I agree with you, the fact that that group didn't have possibly the diversity that you wanted. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with your positioning, because one of the conversations that somebody's had with me recently is it seems like she knows that. And this is a question for you, and I don't know how to phrase it. I'm still trying to think through it. But she knows that class and economics are a problem, but she kind of views that focusing on the individual and racism within the individual is how to solve it. Right. I, but, but, yeah. but what do you kind of think of that? That's a really broad question. Something like I said, I'm trying to work through right now, too, that somebody brought up. I think that she is really, really smart in her understanding of how the power dynamics work in, in the situation of class um, and, and class within a racist society, you know, specifically, because that's a whole different kind of classism. And she's really, really smart on that. And she's written so much good information that again, we need to revisit now. I think her major blind spot is that she she came from an elite family. You know, she came from money. And even though she will say like, oh, there were definitely parts where she was poor and she had to work or she had to drop out of college to go work. I mean, just the fact that, you know, she's going to college as a, as a woman in the, the 1920s and 30s and, and getting an education and having the family land, you know, just having a big piece of land to never have to worry about paying, you know, on except for taxes. That those are the kind of like white social or white safety nets that that a lot of white people don't don't see that they have when they mm-hmm. you know claim that they're self-made or that they're going through hard economic times. And so I think she just really didn't have an understanding of what it was like to be a poor white. And obviously she had so many neighbors up in Raven County who were who fit that bill perfectly. But and I've seen she, I've seen stuff too where she was very disparaging of them at first. Right. Of the Appalachian Hill folk, as I think she called them or something like that. Absolutely. I mean, this was a time when especially Appalachian 
kind of hillbilly, you know, people were, um, and you know, in a lot of ways, considered not quite white, uh, as sociologist Matt Ray puts it. They were they were considered a, kind of a racial other. Um, they were suffering from all sorts of diseases like pellagra and hookworm. And you know, this is exactly the time when Franklin Roosevelt comes down and and calls the South the nation's number one economic problem. And guess what? You know, ninety years later. It's, it's still the nation's number one economic problem. The South is the poorest region within that region. And it's, again, all because of the legacies of slavery and the failures of, of reparations. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I totally agree with you. I think that's one of her blind spots is that she's very much as much as she helps, as much as she helps Polly Murray, as much as, you know, she helps the actors who had to leave the job when strange fruit closed down when she's saying i'll i'll pay you i'll pay you to help you if you need help as much as she helped the poor whites and the blacks in raven county get school supplies and things like that i still think that there's a little blind spot with her and you see that kind of class distinction within her and it's it's kind of interesting to me considering the things that are on her bookshelf too you know, and I don't totally know. I mean, I know she voted socialist one year. I forgot who the candidate was. It was 36. We looked it up the other day when um, they were running against uh, Roosevelt. And oh, wow. she, was, she, she was involved with that party. There's an interview with a guy on Studs Terkel. Let me find it real quick. Norman Thomas. So she was connected with him. She was connected with, with socialist movements for what they were at that period. And that's just history I don't totally know about, but you know, got to look up. But I think she understood these things. Like you said, I think she had that blind spot with her too. Um, We focused on a lot, but I kind of want to end with this, you know, what else or what would you want to leave listeners with to take away from Lillian Smith's life and work? I think, I mean, and what, how my book is really shaping up is that it's really about her message to white America. You know, I mean, we've got Robin D'Angelo's book, um, which is good to a certain extent, but it's not answering the really hard questions, which is, you know, what do you do with racist family members? It's not, hey, don't talk about racism at Christmas. It's, hey, if you really want to be anti-racist, it's cutting off those relationships. It's no longer, you know, entertaining those conversations at all or, or choosing to associate with people who who choose to hate other people based on uh, the color of their skin or their religion or their you know sexual orientation it is it is it is a series of hard decisions it is understanding that um, you know not only are reparations you know the morally just thing to do it's it's something that all white people need to, to think about, you know, how they can contribute in other ways um, and, and really take a look at their own privilege and really take a look at all of the things that, that they have been handed, oh, not even just this generation, but generations past from, from land grants to, you know, uh, you know, not being arrested because they were the, the right color, all of those things. And, and really taking a look at how, stratified our society still is, you know, almost, again, she started really writing in the 1930s, we're almost 100 years out, and and things, there's definitely been progress, I don't want to minimize the progress, but we're still dealing with a lot of these same problems. And it gets back to the boys, and it gets back to her, because I was reading something from her earlier today, where she's basically like, I can criticize but I can also love, right? She's talking about America specifically there. And she's talking to somebody, I think it's James Dombrowski. <laughs> she's like, I've never heard him criticize Russia, but he always criticizes America, right? You know, Russia's done 
things wrong. And this is, of course, during the Cold War. He can criticize him, but also praise them for good things, right? Same thing with America. And the boy says this. This is, again, in the propaganda of history. And we'll just leave it here if you want to say anything after this. But one is astonished in the study of history at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. We must not remember that Daniel Webster got drunk, but only remember that he was a splendid constitutional lawyer. We must not forget that George Washington was a slave owner or that Thomas Jefferson had mulatto children or that Alexander Hamilton had Negro blood and simply remember the things we regard as creditable and inspiring. The difficulty, of course, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and example. It paints perfect men and noble nations, but it does not tell the truth. I love that. And again, it kind of brings us full circle to Lillian Smith's emphasis on being an artist. And that's why we we need the artists to tell all those stories. Yes, I agree. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.